Hi, hello, how are you listeners? Welcome to episode four of Raw Talk Podcast, the podcast formerly known as Raw Data. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Albert Wong, who's a scientist at the Campbell Family Mental Health Research Institute and psychiatrist in the Schizophrenia Division at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. My research team has collaborated with Dr. Wong quite a bit in the past, and this has afforded me numerous interactions with him at CAMH. And I don't think he knows this, but he was definitely a low-key inspiration for the show. I remember seeing a talk by him at an academic event for graduate students, and he started to help me understand that scientists can think more philosophically about how their research ties into the bigger picture of advancing quality of life. And of course, mental health is conducive to all of that. On this episode, he talks about schizophrenia, doing animal and clinical models of psychiatric disorders. He speaks openly about how society perceives mental health and how mental illness and stigma affect us all to varying degrees. We also hear from Aaron and Kat, who give more context about schizophrenia in a segment called Mythbusters. We also ask U of T students what mental health means to them on our very first Word on the Street segments. Thinking back, this is still one of my favorite episodes, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it back in March of 2016. So here it is in its original form, episode four. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to the fourth installment of the Raw Data Podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. In keeping with this month's theme of featuring physician scientists, we're joined by Dr. Albert Wong, who is a researcher and staff psychiatrist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Now, let me tell you, this guy does it all. He's currently the head of a lab that investigates the genetic, cellular, and developmental basis of psychiatric disorders with a focus on schizophrenia. He also teaches graduate and medical students at the university, and he's a practicing psychiatrist who takes ER shifts in his spare time. I always love talking to Dr. Wong because he's so forthright about human behavior, the brain, and the role that science, medicine, and society play in promoting mental health. This conversation was no different, and we hope you enjoyed as much as we did. All right, let's get to it. Very excited to welcome Dr. Albert Wong to our show today. Welcome, Dr. Wong. Thank you for having me. So let's start with how you got to your current position. Well, um, I went to school for a long time. I uh, did all my training at U of T. So I did a couple of years of undergrad and then med school, then a residency in psychiatry, and then I did a PhD in uh, neuroscience at the end of that residency. So that's kind of the basic, uh, the basic facts about my training. Uh, I grew up uh, all over Canada in uh, BC. I was born in Montreal. Went to high school in Saskatchewan, and my, my dad's a physicist by training, and he, was a, he worked in computer science as a, as a professor in computer science. So, yeah, I was always interested in research, and I was interested in medicine, and so, you know, it, it, I ended up where I really thought I would end up, mostly. Um, in terms of psychiatry, um, I was interested in neuroscience in general, basically because it's, I think, the area of, uh, of medicine and biology that, in which we know the least, and so there's the most research to be done, there's the most action. Um, so yeah, my choice of specialties really included uh, neurology, neurosurgery, neuroradiology, and psychiatry, all the neuro specialties. Um, and I ended up choosing psychiatry for a number of reasons, um, partly because it was, uh, I think the patients are the most interesting. Uh, they, they're the most different from each other. Each patient is quite different from each other. You know, my experience in the rest of medicine, especially surgical specialties like neurosurgery, although the surgery itself is really cool, and some of the stuff, you know, the technology and so on, and it's exciting. But, uh, you know, once they're in the OR, most patients look pretty much the same. You look through a sort of little green square of surgical fabric, and, and they all kind of look the same. So that wasn't so interesting to me, the phenomenology itself. 
and then I think also, you know, psychiatry, um, it's, it's a lot easier specialty to combine with research than neurosurgery, than any kind of surgical specialty. So, you know, there are sort of practical and conceptual reasons for that. And then you landed on schizophrenia as a primary sort of point of interest? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in human behavior in general, uh, but schizophrenia as kind of a, a starting point for a lot of my research um, is basically because, again, the phenomenology is, is so interesting. You know, it's, it's hard to even, uh, it's hard to imagine for somebody who hasn't seen a schizophrenia patient what a florid psychotic uh, episode is like and how uh, different from normal thinking and behavior it is. So I think that in itself is interesting. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's how I got started in, in clerkship, actually. I wasn't specifically interested in psychiatry at that time, but uh, I, was, I was at the Wellesley Hospital, which is no more. But uh, it was there that I first saw patients with schizophrenia. And, you know, the Wellesley is just north of where St. Mike's is now. So it has services a similar kind of uh, uh, inner city population uh, in which there are often patients who get quite sick because, before they come to the hospital because they don't really have much care. And so, yeah, I saw some uh, really severe psychotic symptoms, and that was really what started my interest. This is Aaron. And this is Kat. And as you've just heard, Dr. Albert Wong has had a long-standing interest in human behavior and psychiatric disorders, and particularly in schizophrenia. Although we've made huge advances in battling the stigma against mental illness, there's still many misconceptions surrounding these disorders. So we're here today to introduce a new segment called Mythbusters, where we aim to debunk some of these misunderstandings. The first myth that we want to tackle is that people with schizophrenia have multiple personalities. The word schizophrenia has Greek roots and can be literally translated into split mind, and this may be the cause of this belief. But in fact, those who have schizophrenia do not have multiple personalities. Rather, they may experience delusions or distortions of reality. In other words, they become split from the reality that other people experience. The second myth that needs to be debunked is that individuals with schizophrenia are violent and dangerous. Although individuals with schizophrenia may act unpredictably or erratically at times, those who are receiving treatment are no more dangerous than the average population. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, the risk of violence is greatest when schizophrenia and psychosis are untreated, and this risk decreases substantially when treatment is in place. Our third myth today is that schizophrenia is caused by bad parenting. According to the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this myth may have stemmed from the term schizophrenogenic, which was coined by therapists in the 1950s and means causing schizophrenia. While this word may be fun to say, its use puts unwarranted blame on families who are already struggling to cope with the burdens of this chronic disease. Although high-stress family situations may exacerbate and contribute to the symptoms of schizophrenia, they certainly do not cause it. And for our fourth and final myth of the day, some people may believe that if their family member has schizophrenia, they will develop it as well. In order to study whether a disease has an entirely genetic cause, researchers will study identical twins who share 100% of their DNA. If genetics are the only culprit, both twins would be expected to develop the disorder in question. Identical twin studies have shown that if one twin develops schizophrenia, the other twin has a 50% chance of developing the disorder. So it's clear that genetics are not the whole story. Other influences that may play a role include environmental factors such as exposure to viruses, toxins, or a lack of nutrients at critical developmental periods as well as stressors in early adulthood. Now the truth is that we still do not have a full understanding of what causes schizophrenia. Many researchers actually believe that the label schizophrenia may serve as an umbrella term for a variety of mental disorders with very different origins. Thanks, Kat. I don't know about you, but I would say that you can consider those myths busted. Now back to the podcast. So what are some of the focal points of your, your research right now? So I have a few areas of research. Uh, 
The first one is, is with mouse models, mice that have mutations in genes that are implicated in psychiatric disorders. And basically we use these mice to try and understand how the mutations in these genes affect brain development, brain structure, um, and brain function and behavior. So basically try to, using these uh, mouse models to um, unpack the pathophysiology of schizophrenia, recognizing that there are, it, it, schizophrenia is not a single disease, there are many, many genes involved, and so uh, using a reductionistic approach and looking just at a single gene in a single mouse model is kind of one way of, of uh, you know, putting the puzzle together. Um, but I also do uh, clinical research. Uh, I have a couple of uh, projects. One is uh, using virtual reality to probe spatial navigation in humans as a way of uh, looking at cognitive functions in a naturalistic, ecologically sort of valid way that uh, taps into brain areas that are also involved in schizophrenia. And we're all, I'm also interested, I've also developed an interest in, in PTSD. Um, and so I've started some studies that we haven't published anything yet, but these are early stage studies, uh, both looking at clinical treatments for PTSD and also looking at biochemical signaling pathways that might affect uh, the entrenchment of fear-conditioned memories um, as a way of understanding how PTSD starts. We rely a lot on animal models in order to develop more effective therapies, but this is not the case in psychiatry. Can you talk about the challenges of producing animal models of neuropsychiatric disorders and how it affects translating the work you do into clinical practice? Yeah, so I think the, there are a lot of challenges with using animal models, mainly because animals, um, although they're you know, we, all mammals evolve from a common precursor and many of our brain structures are shared in common as well as many of our basic behavioral sort of modules, if you will. Um, the problem is that the kinds of uh, psychiatric symptoms that we use to diagnose um, clinical psychiatric disorders, these are not apparent in animals mostly uh, because they mostly require language or some other more sophisticated uh, way of communicating in order to, uh, to really you know, say whether the symptom is present or not. You can't tell if an animal is uh, having paranoid delusions or whether the animal's hearing voices. And you really can't even tell if an animal's anxious, it's sort of like a very simple, basic behavior. We can infer from an animal's behavior that it might be anxious. But in the same way that you, you know, cannot always tell what somebody is feeling or thinking just by how they're behaving, you have to ask them and talk to them for a bit. And because you can't do that in an animal, you know, that, that is the main limitation, that we have to observe animal behavior in a number of different paradigms that are very artificial, that we, we create in a lab to make it easy to measure and make them reliable tests and so on. But we don't really know how that's related to a human psychiatric symptom. We can only infer. And sometimes we have better tests. I think, you know, for example, in anxiety and fear conditioning, we have some pretty good tests that uh, even though we don't know directly if the animal's anxious or not, we have a pretty good idea, as opposed to something like psychotic symptoms where we really don't have an animal proxy for that. So I think that's the, the main limitation. But where animal models are useful is, is because, of course, we can manipulate their genomes, we can change their environment, we can expose them to specific stressors, and we can uh, do experiments. We can randomize them to be exposed to these things and, and then compare the groups and see how they are different. And then we can also, of course, uh, extract tissue and look at uh, brain structure and biochemical pathways, things that we obviously can't do in humans. So I think animals are useful for understanding the more uh, granular, molecular, and developmental origins of psychiatric disorders, but they really are not very good at um, dissecting the, the actual um, symptoms and symptomatology. Do you envision any solutions or alternatives to these challenges? Um, I, I think there's going to be no simple solution to fix this. I think. Um, we could improve animal models by coming up with more sophisticated assays. So uh, one example is, uh, is just, I'm, I'm, I know that uh, uh, Tim Boosie is coming tomorrow to, to speak uh, in Toronto. And uh, he's uh, 
one of the guys that invented these touchscreen boxes, these touchscreen um, uh, operant chambers for mice and, and rats. So basically, it's, it's you know it's a normal operant chamber where uh, reward or uh, could be delivered, for example. And instead of the levers or holes that used to be uh, used, it has a touchscreen that essentially looks like a, an iPad or an iPhone touchscreen. And so this allows much more sophisticated and flexible testing of, uh, of uh, various kinds of learning paradigms. And also allows a much more direct translation from the animal to a human subject because you can give them almost, sometimes in fact you can give them what looks like the same paradigm. You can use the same shapes in the same order uh, and in the same logic. So, you know, that's an example, I think, of how we can make better tests that come uh, uh, either closer to a human experience or that can be translated more directly to a, a, a human clinical study. So I think that's one advancement is, is in the refinement of behavioral tests. Um, and I think as we understand uh, genetics better and now that we have tools like CRISPR-Cas9 where we can directly mutate a specific location in the genome, I think we can produce animal models that have... Uh, better sort of, uh, that are more sophisticated in their genetic uh, alteration. So uh, I think that's good um, as a good way forward, as well as also looking at brain circuit functions. You know, now that we understand a bit more about um, the uh, uh, circuits and modules that modulate and regulate certain behaviors, uh, if we can sort of take the behaviors that we think are components of psychiatric disorders and, and separate them out into their biological modules, then we can look at their genetic, molecular, and uh, electrophysiological alterations. Uh, and then, but ultimately, I think there's no way to synthesize all of these things in a single animal model. We can use an animal model for each piece of this puzzle, um, but in the end, I think um, it, we'll still have to put it together. There'll still be a leap between the animal and human clinical studies. But for example, in, in terms of drug development or treatment development in general, I think animal models are uh, potentially very useful. And I think we can, we can do better now than we could before. And I, and I think uh, you know, with these advancements in the genetics uh, and in the uh, phenotyping, we can probably come up with better paradigms to screen drugs that have better predictability. I think that's uh, an achievable goal. But I, I still think there'll be a bit of mystery, really, uh, because we, uh, you know, we can't even really understand or know for sure what somebody else is thinking or feeling. They can tell you, but you know, this is sort of an age-old philosophical problem that exists. Of course, it's amplified uh, and uh, much more difficult uh, in an animal, even though we think we can infer in some animals that are relatively similar to us, especially ones that, we're, that we know well, like dogs and so on, or other domestic uh, animals. We have, we have a sense of what they might be feeling, but you know, in the same way that we interpret what other people are feeling, we can do that with animals, but there's still always gonna be a significant gap there. So what's the current status of the dopamine and glutamate hypothesis and the role it has in the symptoms of schizophrenia? I think there will be some cases of psychiatric disorders in which there is a simple molecular cause. And there may very well be a subset of people with schizophrenia that essentially have, um, you know, one example I can think of is, uh, this is work by, uh, I think his name is Dalmo, his last name. Uh, he worked on patients with teratomas, which are these uh, you know, tumors that produce, that are uh, pluripotent and have uh, differentiate into a number of different tissues, which can include brain tissue. And so he found that some patients with teratomas, they, 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 have, they probably have some brain tissue that has NMDA receptors expressed and it's being released into the bloodstream and stimulating an immune response. And so in these patients, they have psychotic symptoms and they also have circulating NMDA receptor antibodies. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, functionally like taking PCP or ketamine or some other NMDA blocking drug. 
So it makes sense that they would have psychotic symptoms. So, you know, this is a very rare but uh, clear example where there is a, a very specific control point for symptoms that is being uh, stimulated by a disease process. So I think there will be other sort of maybe um, more subtle but uh, still very simple causes of psychiatric disorders out there. But I think in the majority of cases it'll be more complicated than that. Um, you know, we are, uh, we are an outbred species, so there's a great genetic diversity, so there's a lot of gene-gene interactions. Our environments, of course, uh, uh, are very different as well, our, our developmental trajectories. So all of these things affect the way the brain develops and its function uh, you know, in adulthood. And so I think it's likely that there, there won't be a simple explanation for a given clinical syndrome, but rather there will be specific explanations for uh, certain symptoms in certain patients. So outside the academic and clinical settings, what is the relevance of a field like psychiatry, more broadly neuroscience, to uh, the everyday person? How is it relevant to someone's everyday life? Well, I think it's relevant because it helps us to understand who we are. Uh, it helps us to understand what drives human behavior and why it is that we do the things that we do. And I think it's actually very um, topical and important because one thing that humans do is, is kill each other and fight with each other and not get along. And, and, and humans are also susceptible to ideology. They're uh, susceptible to mob behavior, mob rule, all of which I think people would see in some contexts as being problematic and being negative. Yet these are part of who we are as a species. And so uh, understanding these things, aggression, um, rivalry, dominance, uh, and what, what drives these things, um, I think is the first step in figuring out what to do about it. Um, I, I think it's unrealistic to change, you know, my personal opinion is that it's, it's not realistic to create social systems to just uh, uh, regulate and force humans to do certain things. I don't think that works. So that applies to, you know, uh, laws against speeding while driving. I, I just think of that because I saw someone pulled over on the way here. Um, whether it's, it's drug use or sexual behavior, all of these things, you know, have been subject to social and cultural and legal restrictions throughout history. Um, so, you know, although I guess, you know, my, my perspective is generally a libertarian one, I'm not suggesting that we don't have any social structures. What I'm saying is that we need to understand how humans are and what drives their behavior in order to design societies, social systems, and legal uh, systems that can help societies function smoothly, can help uh, us, uh, you know, get along and uh, be productive and uh, live in peace with each other um, in, in the most efficient way possible. And I don't think that we've done that. I think um, uh, our, our, our legal systems and our governments and our social systems have largely uh, been designed uh, based on ideas, based on philosophies or religious ideas or you know, uh, cultural customs, some of which are anchored in an empirical understanding of how people behave, but many of them are not. And they often, I think we all agree that they often don't work. And especially when we have a, uh, we've created an environment on this planet that's far different than the one that we had very recently evolved to adapt to. And this very rapid expansion in human population and very rapid um, change in our, our human-built environment is something that we haven't figured out how to deal with yet. And so uh, I think one important but underappreciated role for uh, neuroscience is to understand 
what it is that makes humans behave the way they do as a way of solving some of the major problems that we face. So in about 100 or 200 years, do you see a human that's adapted to a sort of a newer environment? No, I don't see a human that's really very different than the one that was walking on the plains of East Africa uh, 125,000 years ago. What I see, hopefully, is uh, if we're successful, uh, what I see is a society that's designed in a different way, that uh, is designed to accommodate what it is that makes us a species and uh, runs better because it's designed based on a, a knowledge of how us, how we work as a, as a machine and as, a, as, as groups of organisms working together. There's been a lot of talk on uh, university campuses, but also in society at large, about mental health. And there have been many campaigns to support mental health initiatives and to reduce stigma. But I think we're just scratching the surface as to what mental health exactly is. And surely mental health is more than just the absence of psychiatric symptoms. So what do you envision to be mental health? Um, so that's a complicated question. And it, it raises several other questions. Uh, one of them is about the obvious one about, the st about stigma associated with mental health and then also about the definitions of mental health and mental illness. So I think that, I think that these campaigns to address stigma are, are well-intentioned, but I think they, they suffer from a few problems. You know, for example, let's, let's take um, something like alcoholism or alcohol dependence, alcohol abuse. So I, I think the, the stigma associated with something like that was, was, comes from the idea that somebody who uh, is, has a problem with substances, has, it's a failure of will, and it's therefore seen as some kind of failing of character or their sort of, it says something about their, their, their moral capacity, their, their moral standing. And I think today, we've really tried to redefine this as, as an illness, as being something biologically driven, fundamentally. And I, I think the, the problem is that it's, it's not that simple either. So we, we know that there are genetic vulnerabilities and there are certain circumstances that increase the likelihood that somebody is going to have a problem with alcohol. Um, but of course, there are also decisions that people make. So this kind of uh, distinction between how much of a behavior is driven by free will and how much is the fault of some um, pre-existing factors for which the person, on, over which the person has no control, this is basically the, the essence of the debate, I think, in terms of uh, mental illness and how people are seen with mental illness. If we see that mental illness is entirely something like I don't think of a, a physical illness for which there's really very little environmental input. I, I'm having a hard time finding, thinking of one. Perhaps Huntington's disease, yeah, uh, or cystic fibrosis. You know, so if it's, a, if it's driven primarily by factors that the patient has no control over, then we see it in this very kind of pure disease model for which there's absolutely no moral culpability, shall we say. On the other hand, you know, there's the other extreme where, where we see all behavior as, as partly a choice. So I guess in, in some ways, uh, this is, I, I don't like this debate in the first place um, because I think for, for several reasons. The first is that I don't know that it's fruitful to debate how much of a behavior originates in willful, uh, uh, how much of it is volitional, how much of it is, say, deliberate. Because I think, first of all, that, that there's really no answer to that question. It's really a philosophical question. I'm not sure that's a scientific question. I'm not, I'm not sure that's testable. So I think it's reasonable for this, in a legal system, for example, to be a, uh, uh, an issue. So in the West, our legal systems do spend a lot of time trying to decide how much of a particular action was intentional and how much of it was not intentional. 
and that's how we decide the level of guilt. Not all cultures, not all legal systems fixate on this type of question. So that in itself, I think, tells us that this is not really a scientific question. This is really a, a legal or a moral or a social question, which is fine. It's, it's fine for us to have those kinds of debates. Um, so that, that's one issue, I think, with this, uh, which is embedded in the discussion about stigma related to mental illness is an is uh, implicit statement about how much we think behavior is volitional. And, and so essentially, I think that's not very fruitful because people can argue about that. It actually obfuscates the point, which is that uh, we're sometimes not very nice to people uh, in general. And we're maybe not nice to people for a number of reasons. Uh, because they represent something we don't like, because they are a, a different social group that defined in many different ways. And sometimes we're just, we're just not nice to people because they irritate us or we don't uh, understand why they're behaving that way. So I think you know, that these uh, anti-stigma campaigns to do with mental illness um, might do well to focus on people being a little bit more tolerant of each other's behavior in general, which I think is, is, is already uh, something that we have to learn when living in a large city and really humans in general live at far higher density than they've evolved to. So this is something that you know, is a challenge. Um, and I think it's particularly difficult when, some, when somebody else has mental illness and their behavior is uh, you know, maybe disturbing to other people. Okay, so when you consider desired outcomes for patients suffering from psychiatric diseases, what matters to the patient? Yeah, so I think this is also a complicated question. And it's complicated for a few reasons. One is that mental illnesses some of them, you know, it's a big category with, that actually contains diseases that, you know, these are actually, that are in different semantic categories, that are different, you know, sort of uh, mechanistic categories. So we have something like Alzheimer's or Huntington's, which is very much more structurally driven. And then uh, things like ADHD, which, you know, I think are much less clear. Uh, and, you know, eating disorders, personality disorders. Uh, the, the definitions of some of these disorders are either new or they've changed recently. And that in itself tells us that we don't have a good grasp of what they really are, their essence. We don't define them the same as we did, you know, uh, just several years ago. So, you know, I think one of the problems is that mental illness right now is defined primarily by clusters of symptoms. And the judgment of whether th this is normal or abnormal, of course, has a big social and, and cultural filter to it. And um, so, you know, that's, that's, and that's related to the, the fact that most mental illnesses um, are not like other diseases in the sense that they don't kill you or that they don't create a specific pathology that uh, we can see. Uh, there's no specific change in the brain that's associated with that specific disorder. There may be things that are correlated with it and that are, that are associated, but nothing that's diagnostic. So, you know, I think part of the problem is that uh, we can't, we have not very clearly defined what illness is. And then so in contrast, it's not very clear what the absence of illness and also what optimal healthy mental functioning might be. And I think the, the, the reason is because it is very complicated and it's not the same for everybody. So, you know, uh, you know, in the level of personality, for example, if we think of it in a dimensional way, things like extroversion or uh, various more, uh, uh, I think, you know, second order personality traits, they can be useful in some contexts and detrimental in others. So, you know, the kind of person that would make a good Navy SEAL is probably not the same kind of person I would want to be a kindergarten teacher. And in the same way, you know, what might, might make a good psychiatrist is probably not the same kind of personality that would make a good uh, arbitrage stock trader. So people can do well uh, in life. Uh, two different people uh, with, with essentially the same personality organization 
can do very well or do very badly depending on what path they choose in life. And this applies not just to, to basic traits, but also their uh, experiences. You know, uh, sometimes a moderate amount of adversity at the right developmental period can be a challenge and, and the person can overcome that and they actually become more resilient and stronger, where somebody else uh, could actually suffer some problems because of that uh, environmental insult. So it's really, I think, quite complicated. And to, to, to say what optimal mental health is, is really not possible. You know, there are so many different ways of being successful and to do well in life. And a lot of it is by chance some of its uh, choices. Um, so I think it's really very complicated and it's, it's not possible to, to, have a very, to have a simple summary uh, statement to say, well, this is what mental health is. This is Kat. And this is Aaron, your favorite segment hosts. Now, we know you've heard our voices a lot recently, so to mix it up a little, we wanted to get the word on the street about mental health. Richie and Jabir discussed with Dr. Wong what matters to patients with psychiatric disorders and what mental health means to them. One of the pitfalls of treating mental illness that Dr. Wong identified is that there is no single definition of mental illness or mental health. So we took to the streets to find out how people really define and understand the term mental health. We're out here on St. George today asking people what mental health means to them and how they would define it. So we're actually standing here with Ben. Ben. And Ben, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a second year student at Vic College studying global health with a minor in statistics and philosophy. Okay, very cool. So just in a few words, um, how would you define mental health? Like, what does that mean to you? What do you think of when you hear those two words? That's hard in just a few words, but generally I think of a state of, of total mental well-being, which, I mean, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For me, I think it has to do with probably feeling like you are actually on the right track with where you want to be. A lot of the time... Uh, people find it hard to to make their goals and what they want match what they're doing in real life and that can cause a lot of stress for people so definitely feeling like they are wh where they want to be and they're doing what they want to be doing is important. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm Valentina from a mathematics application okay. major and I'm currently reading a math book <laughs> in the park. <laughs> and, and you got health, bombarded by us. <laughs> yeah. And mental health to me is very important. And the reason why I'm here is basically because of mental health. I think mental health to me means that there is few or no stress for me. Mm -hmm. I can fall asleep at night easily and I don't have to struggle with the problem that I have mm -hmm. during the day. And the way that I deal with the stress to, re uh, to improve my mental health is to sit in the park and <laughs> read math books. Yeah, as you can see, and it looks yeah. so peaceful. I guess for me, like I know that when I'm feeling mentally healthy is when like, I'm excited about doing things and I feel happy, like I don't feel dreaded about say going to class like I'm actually excited and studying or with studying and stuff and yeah I guess just like you know feeling good about yeah. heading into the day. So what do you guys do to maintain that uh, excitement and to maintain that like emotional kind of balance? I like to stay active mm -hmm. yeah. so I'm on the track team um, so yeah being out on the track really relieves stress and then like being outdoors like this yeah definitely a lot of like outdoor stuff and yeah. Do you say the same? <laughs> yeah, I'm also track field, so uh, just sort of, you know, having a routine, but also switching it up. So doing stuff like what we were doing today, throwing the baseball around kind of thing. Uh, so we're always having these little adventures here and there. So we just came across 
Benjamin Brudis. Hi, Benjamin. Um, can you just maybe give us sort of your definition of what mental health and what that sort of means to you? Sure. Uh, I suppose it's a level of balance, uh, both work, scholarship, uh, and, and actual living, uh, as well as uh, of uh, emotions and um, commitments. Mm -hmm. And so what sorts of things or what sort of strategies do you employ to be able to sort of maintain that balance and to maintain that mental well-being? Not, uh, I try not to uh, get too uh, invested in my work, but that never, never works out. <laughs> um, I can see all your books. <laughs> trying to do a, uh, uh, moving about, uh, making sure I get outside, mm -hmm. uh, exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when one remembers to eat, to eat is helpful. That well. is very important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as is uh, a good rest, uh, even if it has to happen midday. <laughs> My name is Lucas. I'm a third year undergraduate student at U of T studying global health and international relations. Um, mental health is very important to me. It's something that I care a lot about a lot of my uh, friends and family have been affected by it, so it's something that um, throughout my entire life I've really wanted to, to raise awareness about. And I think it's one of those things that affects everyone. We're not like immune to mental health, which is why it's very important to raise awareness about mental health advocacy to break the stigma that many uh, individuals face when they have a mental illness. And hopefully one day we can you know, move towards a world where you know, we truly accept these people for who they are and we can really invest in the resources to help these individuals so that they can manage um, their mental health disorders. Well, mental health, I think, is primarily being happy and satisfied with where you are at. Um, not necessarily worrying too much about conforming to the, to the world around you, but just being satisfied from the inside out with your mental state um, from your own perspective. Now, that means finding a balance within yourself. Um, and perhaps a balance amongst others, but starting from yourself and moving outwards from there. And how do you uh, maintain that satisfaction or kind of curb your anxieties? What are some things you do? I know it's not always easy, I'm sure, but... Sure. I think, well, a little amount of physical activity. Yoga is great. A little amount of relaxation. Wine is great. Uh, coffee, coffee breaks, sunlight, and park benches are great. Wonderful. Um, Really, whatever whatever brings you back to that place of, mm. of calmness and to relieve your own stress. Now that could be different for everyone, but yeah. finding that own balance um, with your natural flow, I think. Yeah. Currently inside Jimmy's, getting a coffee in the mid afternoon, um, and we're here with Nathan. Nathan, who's making our coffee, and so we just wanted to ask him what mental health means to him and what strategies he um, uses to be able to sort of maintain mental well-being, mental health. Um, to me, I think it means um, kind of looking after yourself. It's weird. Like, I actually had this discussion with a friend recently. Where it's like, you can't just assume you're going to be happy. Like, when I was a teenager, it's like, oh, you're happy, and, like, that's it. But you don't have to do anything. And now I think I'm realizing it just takes work, and you've just got to, like, every day try and, like, relax yourself and just do whatever it is that will make you happy. And, like, listening to your own mind as well. Sometimes we don't do. <laughs> so what is it that makes you happy? Coffee. Mm -hmm. Red velvet, <laughs> Red chocolate. velvet and chocolate, <laughs> anything sweet. And then I sugar crash and then I'm unhappy. <laughs> A huge thank you to everyone who participated in our first Word on the Street segment and who shared their own definitions and experiences of mental health. I think the different responses that we just heard are reflective of the challenges in having a single comprehensive definition of mental health. 
and further reinforces the need to truly understand what is important to patients who are struggling with mental illness. And having had a chance to chat with so many people allowed us to think about the role mental health plays in our own lives on a daily basis. You know, for me, mental health is not so much about striving to be happy all of the time, but rather it's more about having the confidence that you'll be able to handle all of the challenges that you are faced with. And I'd probably echo what you just said, and along with that, I think it's important to recognize that not all days will be good ones, and building a supportive network around you can go a long way to help you cope when you encounter difficult times. So again, thanks to everyone who contributed to this segment. And now, back to the podcast. But you're suggesting that it's important to have a society that kind of fosters different personality types to be effective and productive. Yeah, and, and I think um, maybe, maybe that's kind of putting it the other way around. I think, uh, you know, society has its uh, features, and every society is different, and it's different at every time in history. Um, part of the task of being a successful human is to figure out what it is, uh, is, is to have insight about one's own abilities, tendencies, character, and to make choices and to uh, channel one's efforts towards um, goals that are likely to be successful and that are going to be compatible with that, that person's personality. And you know that's not always possible. People don't always have those kinds of choices. And so I think as a society, we could try and ensure that people have those choices. But uh, you know, this goes back to the earlier question uh, about what you know, we would define as a successful outcome. Sometimes people want something that other people think is bad for them. And so this is a dilemma that we have in a liberal democracy, that uh, people are free to be psychotic, uh, and people are free to make bad choices in, in other areas. So this is, this is kind of the, the dilemma. You know, we, we could say what we think is optimal in a general global sense, but people may still choose something that's not optimal. You know, so, you know, the simplest example would be, you know, uh, uh, when people choose their mates. You know, throughout history, there have been a variety of, uh, you know, marriage systems that include uh, complete arranged marriages to complete free choice. And uh, people are, people find themselves in, in happy and unhappy marriages uh, in all these circumstances. Um, and uh, we've all had the experience of, you know, uh, of knowing somebody whose uh, choice in romantic partners seems unwise to everybody else, seems to make them unhappy, yet they keep on going back to that. And, you know, this is, so this is an example of, of how, it, you know, we can have our ideas of what is, is uh, uh, helpful to the person, what's productive and constructive and, and what seems to be the best for them, but they may not choose that. And, and that's, part of, that's part of, you know, being human, and it's also a challenge in... in in uh, addressing mental health. So we'd like to wrap down by talking a little bit about your role as a clinician scientist. So you wear many hats, you, you teach, you see patients, and uh, you do research. Why was it important for you to combine the clinical aspect with the, the academic? Um, personally, I get the simple answer is that uh, I get bored easily and I like to do different things. And uh, so having a number of different activities really is uh, you know, interesting to me. and. Uh, how, how I sort of stay engaged. Um, but I also think that combining these things, I think, uh, I hope, leads to, uh, can help one be better at each of, the, each of the component things. So that I think, um, you know, as a clinician, when I, I supervise medical students and residents, and um, by, by doing research into the neurobiology of the diseases that I'm seeing, I think that helps me understand the patient in a deeper way. It's not always a direct practical application, but I think it helps me think about behavior in general and the treatments that we're trying to, to use. It helps me uh, think about it in, I hope, a more sophisticated way than uh, would be without 
this kind of research uh, without without being a researcher at the same time. And in the same way, I think uh, you know it would be difficult to imagine how uh, how research wouldn't help in my role as a, as a as a teacher. So you know, I think they all kind of work together and. Uh, so it's a standard question, but what's a typical day like for you with all these responsibilities? How do you manage? So the standard answer is there is no typical day, and I think that's really true. Yeah. So some days I, I try to block off to uh, to, to write, uh, to work on papers or grants, um, and other days are, are taken up by uh, clinical. So sometimes, for example, I, I might uh, I've, I've recently been doing some shifts in eMERGE at CAMH, and so those are full day kind of endeavor, and they're obviously quite busy. So uh, you know, there's really not much space in my head for anything else other than that that day. Uh, but various often, you know, I might have uh, days where I, I see a few patients, or I have a half day of clinic, and then the other half uh, I'll uh, work on research, uh, you know, hang out in the lab, see what my students are doing, or teach. You know, so really, every every single day is a little bit different. Do you find time to step away and, and work on personal things, interests, hobbies? Yeah, I think. Uh, I think, like most academics, I, I end up working during times when people wouldn't that people wouldn't consider working hours, like in the evening on the weekends. But at the same time, because my schedule is flexible, I can also I also have time to uh, uh, think about other things and, and do other things, have fun. You know, so yeah, I think that's that's one of the things I really like about uh, my job is uh, the ability to to spend time on things that I like and that I'm interested in thinking about, uh, which obviously includes uh, the stuff we've been talking about today. For new students, prospective students coming in, how do you identify talented or undergraduate students with some promise? What key attributes do you look for in the students coming into your lab and staying and being successful in your lab? It's one of those things that I think are, it's pretty obvious uh, when I see it. And it, it's, it's hard to say what the ingredients are. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to a concert, you know, like, I don't know, you see like those Justin Bieber videos from when he was, when he was young. And you just need to listen to like five seconds of that, and you're like, "Wow, this kid's got some serious talent, right?" So it's one of those things. It's like, what is it about that? Well, there's nothing in particular. I mean, lots of people can sing that melody and, and be have, have good pitch, and uh, have some stage presence, whatever. But it's just something about that. And I think it's the same thing in, in science. It's really there's some. It's really obvious when somebody's talented. Um, you know, I have a PhD student right now who I put in that category. Um, he. Uh, He's really interested in science. He thinks about it a lot. That's kind of it's he uh, he's passionate about it, and he's really really smart. And he, he spends his brain power thinking about not just the problems that we are working on in the lab, but uh, about science in general. Yeah, what is it in particular? I don't know. It's, it's just you know different, and different people have different ways of being really talented. Has there been a student that became a late bloomer in the lab? Yeah, I guess um, another example would be uh, another PhD student in my lab who uh, came back to science after working a full career and retiring. So he worked for the federal government in a fairly high-level job. He worked his way up. And uh, you know, I think when he was younger, he wanted to go to university, but various circumstances prevented this. And so he'd always wanted to go back to school. So he finished uh, his job. He retired. Um, and then he went back to university, did an undergrad degree, and, then, and now he's almost finished his PhD in my lab. So it's an example of somebody who, that's, you know, very late bloomer. Um, that's never too late. I think that brings us to the end. Is there any initiatives you maybe want to highlight or point to? Uh, yeah, it's easy. Just Google me or uh, just email me, albert.wong at utoronto.ca if you're interested in uh, finding out more about the lab or if you're interested in uh, you know working on stuff that we work on. Send me an email. Thank you. 
Raw Data is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawdataims.com, and also be sure to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. So what is it that makes you happy? Coffee. Red velvet. <laughs> and chocolate, anything sweet. And then I sugar crash and then I'm unhappy. <laughs>